This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley bringing the best of my times radio show don't forget you can listen live monday to friday 10 till 1 Hell of a week next week, live on the radio at 12.30 on Monday. We'll bring you news of who the new Prime Minister is. On Tuesday, we'll have all the news from Westminster and the comings and goings in Downing Street. And on Wednesday, the very first PMQs. PMQs unpacked with the new Prime Minister. So all of that next week. And then we've got a focus group on what swing voters have made of our new leader. So all of that next week. Coming up on today's episode, though, we look back. Adam Bolton and Kate McCann the new hosts of the Times Radio Sunday show. They've been looking back at the three acts of Boris Johnson's premiership. Really, really interesting discussion with them coming up. In a moment, we'll have the Commonist panel. But first, let's take a look at what we learned this week. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, it's good to speak to our Friday Columnists. Morning, James Forsyth. Morning, Matt. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. Melanie Reed, good morning. Morning, chaps. Nice to have you both. Uh, nice to have you both with us. Are we Are we excited, sad, uh, disappointed about the end of the Tory leadership contest? <laughs> right, that silence, I think, speaks volumes. I think we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> move on. because We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about that later, so it's fine. Um, let's talk about your column today, James, because it's interesting that the the the, uh, the argument that you mount, I thought, well, it's always good to have a sort of historical quote in there. J- Jim Callaghan, observing back in 1979, that sometimes there's a sea change in politics, every perhaps every 30 years, uh, and he predicted that there was a sea change and it was towards Margaret Thatcher, and you sort of mount the case that we could be Everything, you know, 12 years of Tory government or Tory-led government and what's happening with the energy prices and the cost of living crisis could create a sea change which the Tories find themselves on the wrong side of. Yeah, I mean, there is a danger of that. And I mean, you see this actually in, in, in that most flat right of policies, privatisation. And, you know, people's view that the, the energy market and the water market, they just they just aren't working. Now, personally, I don't think nationalisation is the answer. I think I think it is. It, I still think privatisation is the right policy, just but you need better regulation. I think people say, look, why are we in a world where these water companies are paying dividends to their shareholders, but still pumping untreated sewage into, into rivers uh, and the sea? You know, on the energy market, you know, why are prices going up you know, so high? Uh, and why is... Why have you got, you know, people resigning from the board of Ofgem saying that, you know, because they think that, you know, they're allowing 
producers to 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 recoup earlier than otherwise with the cost of hedging on the wholesale energy market, pushing bills up for consumers at just the time when consumers are are, are most cash strapped. You know, why is the price of electricity? Uh, well, sorry, why is the price of electricity still determined by the marginal gas price? Something that Boris Johnson himself said a, a couple of months ago was crazy, right? Why has this not been sorted out? I mean. The danger for the Tories is, and you saw this actually in Boris Johnson's speech yesterday, when you have been in power for 12 years, you can't stand up and say, well, we've got an energy crisis, and thanks a bunch, Tony, thanks a bunch, Gordon. It just doesn't work. People, the Tories have to show that they can deliver and make things work. Otherwise, the country's going to say, well, look, you've had 12 years to try out your ideas. We're going to give the other lot a run out. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, and Boris Johnson particularly, but let's just take a look at this. Was Boris Johnson making his speech yesterday about... Uh, announcing more money for Sizewell C. Let's take a listen. For 13 years, the previous Labour government did absolutely nothing to develop this country's nuclear industry. They said it didn't make economic sense. I think they even said that in their, in their manifesto. Well, thanks a bunch, Tony, and thanks a bunch, Gordon. Tell that to British businesses and industries that are now desperately short of uh, affordable and reliable electricity. Tell that to families that are struggling with the cost of heat and light this winter. And yet, if you go back to there's a video during the rounds uh, of Tony Blair in 2006 skewering David Cameron at some length over his lack of a stance on nuclear power. <laughs> so, what's he, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. So, what's he going to do? The Cabinet Secretary, he's, he's the Prime Minister, the Cabinet Secretary comes in and says, I'm afraid the renewables haven't generated as much as we want. I'm afraid we're not going to be able to keep the lights on. What's he going to say? Rustle me up a nuclear power station. <laughs> I mean, a reminder as much as anything, Melanie, that they're probably all as bad as one another. We've talked on lots of fronts about short-termism. And when it takes, whatever it is, 10, 15 years to build a nuclear power station, nobody, nobody ever quite gets around to doing it. People are cross and scared because, no, you know, we ex- they expect the, com- the, the country to be managed. They expect the roof to get fixed when the sun was shining. And, and the, there has been time to fix these things. It hasn't happened. And there is that sense now that, you know, Britain is broken and, you know, nobody's taking the blame. And there is a a visceral emotional feeling. Uh, People are scared. Everything's going wrong. You know, the NHS and housing and inflation. And it, 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 it's grim. I, I, I I really actually don't think politicians have, have quite got this. I really don't think, think that, I don't think trust and, um, has any sense of of uh, how how scared people are? It's interesting that James. There's a, there's a question as to whether or not does Liz Truss Truss have a big plan which rises to the occasion and acknowledges the scale of both the practical issues, but also as Bunny was saying, the sort of the fear that people have right now. But she's just chosen not to tell us yet, or is she is she yet to come to terms with it? Does she not yet realise that that's what she needs to do? So I think there are two things. First of all, I think the crisis has got progressively worse as this Tory leadership race has gone on. Um, And so I think that, you know, ideas that might have seemed kind of adequate or, or arguably adequate at the very beginning of this race are not given what we know now about where the price cap is. And crucially, how high gas prices are like to remain for so long. And I think the second thing is, I mean, there is a conflict between Liz Truss's instincts and what needs to be done. So I think you saw her instincts in that FT interview when she said, well, you know, no handouts, right? And that she wanted, she, you know, her instinct is that, you know, and she, and she still says this, you know, that you should, you should do this 
through tax cuts, that you shouldn't take money off people in taxes and then give it back to them in some other form. I think the problem you've got, though, is that these energy price rises are so severe that you are, and, and I think she will. I think she will do this. I mean, you've seen her repos- trying to kind of reposition since that Financial Times interview. You will have to do some direct support for households, and you will have to go really quite high up um, the income scale because these bill increases are going to be so big that people who, in normal times, you would consider to be relatively comfortably off, are, are going to get hit by it. And I think this is, I think this is the 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 challenge. I think the challenge is that uh, I think this this autumn and this winter are going to be a time for pragmatism. And yet, trust comes to office as someone who who a lot of her, her appeal to the Tory party is, you know, I am a return to a more ideological form of leadership. And and how she navigates that if she wins is going to be one of the most fascinating things of this of the next six months. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's, uh, in fact, I think it was Danny Finkelstein a couple of weeks ago said his big fear was that she that, that people complained that she'd been inconsistent, a bit all over the place. And he said a big fear, his big fear is that she would be consistent. No, what uh, we I need think... is a bit of inconsistency. We need, you know, the country actually needs her to change direction. I, I, I think this is. I think this, I thought actually it comes through really clearly in, in the in the profile of her in the Times today that you know, she has always been on the kind of pro free market liberal end of things, and you know and 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 I think that this kind of remain Brexit thing can, can obscure that, and I think the kind of the challenge though is this, and you see this actually in this question about the windfall tax. You know, you know, I, I, you know, I would consider myself to be, you know, someone on the centre-right, fairly kind of free market part of British politics. But I think it is very hard to argue that given the energy companies are going to make, according to those figures leaked to Bloomberg, you know, over the next few years, you know, £170 billion more profit than they would otherwise make, not because of some great innovation that they've come up with, but because Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent energy prices soaring. And when you look at what energy companies are doing with that extra profit, you know, large share buybacks rather than kind of massive investments in, in things that might deliver more energy, it is very hard to see what the argument against a windfall tax is. Um, and yet Liz Truss keeps, you know, setting her face against, you know, any other windfall tax. And I think this is one of the kind of, again, one of the challenges. I'm not sure how sustainable that line is um, if the energy companies carry on yeah. as they are and the energy prices remain where they are. That's a very good point you make there. Uh, let's talk about the other side. The guy on the other side then, he's celebrating today. <laughs> this is the least Keir Starmer version of Happy Birthday you could probably think of. but well, maybe thrash metal version. Now, I was struck by this man. Keir Starmer's 60 today, and he, which is older than I thought. And actually made me realise that if he, if he were to become Prime Minister, he'd be the oldest Prime Minister since Jim Callaghan. Which is just a bit of an about, you know, about turn from the sort of rush. There's also a sort of 13 year difference between him and Liz Truss. And they do feel like they come from different generations as well as different sort of uh, political, uh, you know, wings. Yeah. And in a rather nice way, I think, I think he's been, he's been 60 since he was 30. Don't, 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 don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Some, some people like that. Some people like that. Like, some I, people I put are Patrick like McGuire in that, in that category. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're sort of dependable and decent, and they're grown up, and 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 yeah, they're pretty boring. But you know, it's kind of um, we need people like that. Uh, I think you think he he could be a man coming of his time. It's I, do you know the the kind of 
with the with the whole Blair. When you think of Blair, what Blair was forty three, wasn't he? And all that fresh faced, yeah, you know, bouncy youthfulness, that sort of tiggerish kind of thing. Major was forty seven, but Major, I mean, Major Major also was sort of prematurely. He, I mean, Major had, I think, was he looked sixty when he was forty seven. <laughs> it, 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 it's 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 that sense of what they what the 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 aura that they have i i mean a is it really is just a number sometimes age age is much more than um just the number on the thing it's what your inner age is how you project yourself how your how your kind of attitudes to life come across and i think um his armor is is has always been sort of gently old fashioned and and Compared to the Americans, you know, we're, well, we're, we're the Americans. I, I was thinking that James, when you look up that, then uh, was it Joe Biden? He's seventy-eight. So, I mean, Joe Biden is technically old enough to be Keir Starmer's dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I think uh, uh, I think it is a fascinating thing that, that you know the, the two most powerful countries in the world at the moment, the US and China, are, are both led by such elderly leaders. I, I, I do think, I do, I personally think Keir Starmer, everyone always says this about him, oh, he's so dull, he's so uncharismatic. If, if, I, was a, if, I, if I was a Labour spin doctor, I would be seeking to turn that to his advantage because I think there has been so much drama in British politics since 2014 that just, just running him as the dull guy who's going to mean that mm. you don't need to think about politics could actually be quite potent. You know, yep. just just leave it all to me. You know, I'm I'm a 60 year old bloke. I'm just going to get on with it quite quietly. You're not going to see me on the news every night. You're not going to have to think about it because you know it, it's like the kind of you know it's like this kind of accountancy software that you always see kind of advertised on, on the train. You know, <laughs> you know let, let someone else take the train. I mean, that that should be kind of... <laughs> he is like a, yeah, Keir Starmer is the political equivalent of an app that does your your tax and expenses. Um, you, you know, you don't want to hang out with him necessarily, but you know, he'll do the paperwork. Uh, finally, um, uh, Melody, you flagged this. I'm, I'm surprised because we talked a lot about this with this launch. We completely forgot to talk about this week. The Festival of Brexit, which we weren't allowed to call it. We had the man on behind it and he was very cross about me calling it the Festival of Brexit. Cost £120 million pounds, and it's been a total flop. Who could have predicted? <laughs> it was called Unboxed. I mean, it's a totally nebulous, nebulous idea of, of a few strange things happening all over britain uh it was given 120 million pounds in in uh, public funding visitor target of 66 million uh 238,000 people have turned up so far <laughs> such a... um, my favorite one of all of them was the the um uh it was called sea monster SWE monster an extraordinary act of collective creativity, a decommissioned North Sea, North sea <coughs> offshore platform regenerated as a major new art installation in Western Supermare. It's like it's been written by like a, a, quite a poor AI, uh, like just put together a random collection of words. What is, of all the things that Western Supermare needs, it's not an old oil rig. I don't know, it's kind of a metaphor for Britain at the moment, isn't it? It's just, it, it's supposed to be, you know, they talked about the Festival of Britain in 1951. We've got unboxed. I mean, and look at this. It's just... <laughs> James, did you, did you make it along to any of these events? Um, I, I, I must admit, I, I did not. I think, I mean, what is you know, the challenges of you know, public art and all, and all yeah. that? Uh, but I, I also think there's a kind of... I think there is a there is another problem, which is you know, what 
we and I think it would be some quite work this out in some ways. You know, what do we wish to celebrate at the moment? And I mean, this is this is I think this is a kind of you know, kind of profound cultural question. I'm always it's really I thought it was really interesting that if you watch the um all of the kind of concert for the platinum, it's not an original point of confidence for the Queen's Jubilee. You know how you know? Yes, obviously it's looking back at seventy years. Yeah, but how old the bands are. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. There, there are people that even me, with my very limited knowledge of popular culture, have heard of. <laughs> and, and I think this is, uh, uh, you know, I think this is this is a problem. We do see, you know, not not, and this is, goes far further than Britain. Kind of, that in general, the Western world at the moment does seem to be kind of culturally stuck. You know, I mean, it, 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 you know, um, uh, we, our, our neighbours who live next door had a kind of party uh, over the summer, yeah, and, and I was very struck by. How you know they're young professionals in their, I imagine they're kind of mid twenties, uh, and yet you know, uh, I, was, I was saying to my wife and I was saying to each other, you know, we both knew all the music they were playing, and lots of the music that they were playing were music that our parents would have listened to, and, and yet you know there was nothing that we didn't know. And again, you know, this is not we are, we are not people who listen to um, six music, put it like that. And I think this is quite an interesting uh, challenge. You know, where where, where are where are the things that you know that 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 are the kind of big modern cultural phenomenon? And also, if you look at like films, TV shows, and we talked last week, we talked about was it Gladiators? Was BBC bringing about Gladiators? All yeah, films gladiators. are either prequels or sequels or part of the universe, which basically means we don't need to come up with any new ideas. We'll just uh, we'll just re- re- reboot them. And maybe that maybe that's part part of the problem, uh, Melanie. The, 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 I hadn't really thought of it like yeah. that. Yeah, there's 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 no there's no there's no fresh thinking. Yeah. Where wow. is it all? Where right. is it all? James Forsyth and Melanie Reed there, and you can read them both in the Times every week. James on a Friday, Melanie on a Saturday in the Times magazine, Mike Collins in on a Saturday as well. This week, is Boris Johnson a bit like Mikhail Gorbachev? I'm not sure it works, but you can judge yourself. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next is the three acts of Boris Johnson's premiership. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. And now the end is near, and so I face the 
the final curtain. Yeah, so as Boris Johnson takes his final bow. This morning, we thought we'd take a look back at the three acts of his premiership. Brexit, Covid and Partygate came to define Boris Johnson's time in number 10. But they're all conspiring in the end to bring about his downfall. And joining me this morning to take a look back before we look ahead to next week. Times Radio's newest starters. They're fresh from their induction. They've got their login. Your pass is working. Uh, Times Radio's Sunday show presenters, Adam Bolton. Morning, Adam. Good morning, Matt. And, and Kate McCann. Good morning. Now, we'll talk about Boris Johnson in a minute, but are you excited about Sunday morning? Sunday, 10 o'clock. Yeah, I am, because, you know, I think this, this format of radio is the best place to be able to get into the story and get behind the story and talk not just to the headline makers, but also to the people who really know what's going on. And I think over over the... Uh, Three commercial hours we've got. We we will get in and pretty good guests. Yeah. And how, so Adam? I spoke to you when I did my series on the Sunday show. Mm. So you did you did Sundays for a long time on Sky. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of partly responsible for Sunday shows. Yeah. Exactly. Because you when, worked when, with when David I was Frost. At TVM, I was yeah. at David Frost when we we brought uh, Sunday shows, uh, political chat shows, to the nation. And actually, initially, people didn't take much notice. Yeah. I mean, David was. Glad it was very chaotic uh, to have a role, but you know the papers didn't even bother watch or, or pick up on it until uh, David scored a very big hit during the uh, ninety-seven, uh, eighty-seven election campaign. Oh, with Neil Kinnock, with Neil Kinnock, yeah, yeah. and and the Tories picked that up. It became a very key part of the campaign, and, and uh, actually that election campaign, the Tories have said no, Mrs. Thatcher's too busy. You know she's not going to do Sunday morning, and uh, then. Uh, he did this interview with Kinnett where Neil Kinnett really didn't have an answer to what would happen if the Russians attacked. And Tories were pleased by that. And they actually came up to me in the central office and said, you know, we're very pleased with TBAM. Anything, you, <laughs> anything you'd like. And I said, well, actually, it'd be good if you could get David for the last Sunday of the campaign. And from then on, it became a fixture that David Frost and his successors would always get the prime minister uh, on a regular basis at an important moment. So, and, and Kate, without being rude about Adam, you're, you, you and I are a bit younger than him. What's your... <laughs> What's your sort of Sunday morning, what era of Sunday morning TV programmes do you remember? Uh, probably, I mean, Mar, Mar is probably oh, yeah, yeah. the one that really sticks in my mind. But, but I was a newspaper journalist before I did yeah, TV. Yeah. So for me, the Sundays were always a really You spent Sunday deal. with Adam. I spent, <laughs> I spent a lot of time with Adam. Yeah, but yeah, we yeah. spent a lot of time picking up on all those Sunday shows because it was a really big deal and that's yeah, what yeah, filled yeah. the papers the next day. Well, I'm sure you will do that Sunday for Monday because there'll be, there'll be lots. So, you, yeah, Adam and Kate will be here every Sunday from 10 o'clock. So in this slot, every Sunday from 10 o'clock uh, with all the politics you need uh, right on the radio. And the great thing about it being on the radio, you can pop around and do some other things while you're listening to it. Uh, right, uh, let's get back to, then to talking about, the, not what's happening next week, the guy who's about to leave number 10. We're going to do the three acts of Boris Johnson. And we kick off with this. This is Act 1. I did it my way. To take back control. And I say, I say to all the doubters, dude, we are going to energise the country. We're going to get Brexit done. We'll work flat out to give this country the leadership it deserves. And that work begins now. And it's by getting ready to come out anyway that we've greatly strengthened our position with our friends and partners in the EU. Tonight, we are leaving the European Union. And whatever the bumps in the road ahead, I know that we will succeed. 
Kate, the thing I was thinking about, it, it, almost right now, we're all talking about Boris Johnson going to Balmoral next mm. week. This time three years ago, it was all about Jacob Rees-Mogg going to Balmoral and mm. asking to prorogue Parliament and did he do it legally? And it's sort of, it's hard to remember quite what a mess we were in politically at that point. And mm. it, was, it was possible that Boris Johnson wouldn't have even survived that. Yeah, it's really funny. When I was listening to that, it, it is hard to remember quite how bad that time was, but it was really, really bad. And what I was thinking about was when you listen to Boris Johnson back, the thing that he projected at the time was optimism and hope yeah. and that actually there was a way to get through this. And if you remember, we'd been covering this story over and over again, that it was intractable, that there was no way of making this work, that politics was completely divided. You're right. You know, we were talking about the legality of proroguing parliament. And then this guy came along with a message that was just, I'll do it. It's fine. I'll get it done. We'll sort it out. And yes, there was always a narrative at the time that it was going to be very difficult and could you really quite believe that he could do it? But actually, a lot of people just wanted to hear somebody say that, yeah. which I think was why at the time that message was so important. And obviously, subsequently, things were not as simple as he made out. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. In hindsight, it was too good to be true, wasn't it? <laughs> it didn't get Brexit done because we've still got all the arguments over the Northern Ireland Protocol. There wasn't an oven-ready deal to sort that. And indeed... Uh, you know, Liz Truss is going to be arguing about it, uh, assuming she becomes prime minister next week. And, and you know, the other thing about Boris Johnson is he was always a big picture man. He had the slogans, yeah. he, he had the three words, and he had the optimism. He has, And indeed, at that stage, because he had Dominic Cummings, he had the tactics, because remember what happened, you know, Parliament basically uh, went into a sort of state of... Uh, mutual standoff he couldn't get anything through that was the pretext for him to have that election in 2019 yeah. Yeah. when he still had people very much behind him and that that was you know if nothing else a tactical masterstroke yeah. because he yeah. ended up with that massive majority and i always take your point about the northern Ireland protocol is not uh, yet done given that three years ago we were sitting here and we would still be discussing whether or not brexit would happen that, that, you know, there was still a possibility that britain would not yeah. leave the eu and he did, there was definitely a feeling that some people were like, I know all the background about Boris Johnson, his relationship with the truth and his willingness to say whatever we want to hear. But they felt he was probably the only one who could make sure that Brexit happened. Well, I think it needed somebody who was going to be able to, and you're right, actually, it needed somebody who was going to be able to talk to both sides and in a way tell both sides what they wanted to hear because this process was always going to be difficult. And we are not that far from the Brexit vote in terms of politics, in terms of long-term thinking. So actually what has been achieved so far, some would say, is remarkable. Now, there are others who say, well, yes, you know, Northern Ireland Protocol is still not solved. There are some really big issues. Yeah, and have you tried going through a channel port? Really? Well, yeah, and, and the, exactly. The, the, so there are some huge impacts which are still being felt by people. But this was always going to be a huge, big deal. It was always yeah. going to be very difficult. And I think the thing that lots of people recognised at the time was that, you know, Theresa May never quite had that ability to talk to people and... And sometimes that's what statesmanship is. It's yeah. trying to speak to people on a level and find a way to move through really difficult problems. And actually, that's not easy. And I think having spent time, you know, with her government, there was a sense that somebody like Boris Johnson was really going to be the only option. And part, Adam, the reason that Boris Johnson feels so aggrieved now is it was less than three years ago. He won an 80-seat majority, something that a Tory leader hadn't done for a very long time. Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't what he did in government, as far as governing the country is concerned, yeah. that led to his downfall. Yeah. It was the flaws in his own uh, personality. And, you know, if you can leave the behaviour we're going to talk about later to one side, uh, I would say, you know, 
he was a fairly average sort of prime minister mm. uh, in terms of the legislation, everything he brought through. Certainly not uh, a transformative one like uh, Tony Blair or Mrs Thatcher. But, you know, he was doing kind of OK. He although... was recruiting the policeman he said he would, which was fine, but not necessarily, <laughs> yeah. you know, transforming the nation as we know it. But he didn't appear really to have anything other than you know, slogans and newspaper columns to deal with any of the big issues of the day. You know, no, most notably public services response tended to be, we'll spend the money. Yeah. Uh, the Treasury sort of said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> uh, and the services, uh, you know, are all now at, uh, you know, at the stretch point, really. And well, let's move on, because obviously public services have put under particular pressure. No sooner had he got Brexit done, in his words, in early uh, 2020, than this happened. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. I have today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. We must stay alert, control the virus and save lives. Next slide, please. The scientists have done it. And today we can announce that the government has accepted the recommendation to approve the Pfizer vaccine. I can confirm today that we've met our four tests for further easing the lockdown in England. Get boosted now. And while the pandemic is not over, we have now passed the peak of the Omicron wave. Blimey, that takes you back as well, Kate. What a, another weird time in, in politics. It, it's amazing that Boris Johnson now uses, you know, we got through COVID, we beat COVID as a thing, you know, a positive on his on his sort of charge sheet. But, you know, 152,000 people died, the economy, you know, a lot of the arguments now we're having all based on what mm. happened to the economy during that, that point as well. Yeah, I think what Adam was just saying there about the fact that Boris Johnson didn't really achieve very much, a large part of that, they would argue, is about COVID-19, mm. about the fact that, you know, he came into Downing Street with this speech, which really did attempt to reset the agenda. It was the first time we had started talking about the idea that levelling up needed to happen. Mm. And there was a huge financial element to that. And infrastructure, too. One of Boris Johnson's favourite things, of course, building things. Yeah. Which was something that really suited him. And actually, for a Prime Minister who who isn't from the North who'd managed to achieve to win votes in areas of the north of the country that very few Conservatives ever could. It was a big moment. And then COVID happened. And I think, you know, listening to that, it gives me goosebumps a little bit because I remember working through that. I remember being in the office every single day and feeling like we were in a completely different world. Westminster was dead. There was nobody there. And actually, the government was frightened a lot. We all were, yeah, actually. Yeah. Everybody was. And and I think part of that is forgotten now when we talk about COVID. It was everyone was really scared. Remember, we used to put on the bottom of emails, keep safe. Yeah. Stay safe. But, you know, there were some huge financial decisions made during that period by Boris Johnson's government. And they've had massive inf- implications and will do for the next government, too. And whether those were right or wrong, I think, is still a question that we just can't answer. And what's extraordinary, though, is that it's his own side, the Conservative side, who are now attacking yeah. uh, the fact that there was a lockdown? The way was that they, 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 they actually, you know, yeah. everyone's now remembering they, they actually opposed lockdown. It's like yeah. the Iraq War all yeah. over again. And 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 actually, you know, I I I think that that is 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 kind of populist Trumpian, you know, because it was such a shock. And you know, Kate was reporting. I was anchoring from a deserted, massive campus uh, every day for two, three, four hours and 
everything obviously coming in through screens. And, and I felt that at the communications level and at the sincerity of we are doing the best we can mm. to cope with things, actually the government and its advisors did a pretty good job. I think in spite of people criticising the lockdown, no one is actually saying at the moment, they don't talk about the deaths, they don't say, oh, well, if we hadn't had the lockdown fewer people would have died, because that's clearly rubbish. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and it's and amazing that we now have the argument about we shouldn't have had the lockdown. At the time we were having an argument about why, why were yeah. we waiting? Exactly. And, and clearly, you know, mistakes were made. The whole question of, of releases from the NHS in, in, yeah. into care homes was a big mistake. I think the contracts with the best will in the world, it's documented now yeah. that there was a lot of exploitation and that the fast track didn't particularly work. On the other hand... The vaccine program clearly was a success. So I, I, you know, in terms of coping with it, I would, you know, I would give them, you know, B plus really. And I think some of that does go down to Boris Johnson that he did at least publicly take it seriously. The tragedy, if you like, we're going to go on to this, is is that privately it didn't appear so. And the point you're making, Kate, about um, how Team Boris sort of feel like COVID stopped them doing what they wanted. I really remember in January 2020, I was still writing the web box email there. I'd spoken to somebody senior in number 10. And, and normally you'd expect New Year, particularly after the election, New Year, big relaunch, big programme. Said, oh, no, we're not doing that. That's the obvious. That was a very David Cameron thing to do, a very Theresa May thing to do. You know, we're working on it. It's coming. There was always a big, with Boris Johnson, there was always a big speech coming around. There's a big economy speech coming around the corner. There's a big plan coming around the corner. And I remember speaking to someone, maybe mid-late March, and they said, oh, the, the frustrating thing is, this COVID thing is going to take four to six weeks. And by the time it's finished, we'll have missed our opportunity. And obviously, you know, we're still living with the tale of that. And he never really got to sort of get on the front foot on his domestic agenda because of what happened with COVID. Yeah, and because of the long tail of it yeah. and because of the impact. But I think what it exposed is the fundamental disparity in this country at, on a number of levels. Education, you know, kids who were having to study from home with no computers. We had to launch a national scheme to get children computers. The NHS not working effectively with social care. And that's what happened when we put people in care homes with COVID-19. What COVID showed was the fundamental fractures in this society that already existed. And you can argue about how long those had existed for and why, but that is a huge problem. And it's why now you see this conversation about Liz Truss and public spending. Even Patrick Minford, one of the economists Liz Truss leans on, somebody who is pretty radical in their thinking, says... You need to spend more on the public sector. The only way to fix and to grow the economy. And I think it suited Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, one of the ironies of it is he is a big government man and he liked or took advantage of of the opportunities to direct from number 10, including with the news conferences, but in action uh, during the COVID crisis. Uh, In that sense, it was... Churchillian, you yeah. know, uh, uh, mobilise uh, mobilise that, yeah. and, and the problem, of course, is that much of that cuts across the grain of the Conservative yeah, yeah. Party, yeah. Uh, including a libertarian but, like Liz Truss. But there was a clue to that behaviour from City Hall because the way that he he behaved when he was in City Hall when he was the Mayor of London was to surround himself with a team of people who ultimately helped him make quite good decisions, or mostly quite good decisions. 
And I think that's what happened in COVID. But what we're now starting to see is that narrative unpicked about the idea that you gave the scientists too much yeah, power. Yeah. You listen too much to these people who actually most people would say scientists never agree. That's the whole point <laughs> yeah, yeah, of science. Yeah. There is no following right or science, wrong. Following the science became such a difficult exactly. thing. Exactly. And and so in a way that that's what we're starting to see now. And actually, I suppose one of the long, long, long term impacts of the pandemic is, is what it's done to politics. The, the expectation that when s- bad stuff happens, the government will step up. So, you know, if we're going to lock down the economy, then we will pay your bills or we will pay your wages. And then if your energy bills go up, well, why is the government not going to help you? You know, that, 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 the, the way, and then we start, you know, very quickly people start talking about nationalising the railways, nationalising the energy companies. Yeah. And that's all feels like a the impact that it's had on the public expectations of the state. And Yeah, I mean, and, and it is reverse Thatcherism. Yeah. I mean, uh, that we're now looking yeah. to, to, to the role of the state, you know, Ronald Reagan's famous remark about I'm from Washington here to help is the most frightening phrase yeah, yeah. In, in, in politics. I don't think people believe that anymore. Yeah, yeah. So that was Act 2 of Boris Johnson's uh, three, three acts of his premiership, Boris Johnson and the pandemic. And now the final act, Boris Johnson and Partygate. There was no party. All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. I don't think that... Uh, that should happen until uh, the investigation is complete. Firstly, I want to say sorry. I deeply and, and bitterly regret uh, that, 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 that that happened. Sue Gray's report has emphasised that it is up to the political leadership in Number 10 to take ultimate responsibility, and of course, I do. Blimey, O'Reilly. And this is the point that you were making, Adam. That ultimately, what did for him was him personally, not the, actually the way he was running the country. Yeah, and, and to a certain extent, the way in which he was running the government, I, you know, the, the final uh, Chris Pincher revelations and, and the fact that, you know, ministers were no longer prepared to go out and lie on his behalf yeah. and that that had become habitual, that people were being sent out to say things uh, that weren't true to defend a prime minister. That is what broke the back of uh, his government and indeed his party's trust in him. And this, I think, you know, you, we've talked about Brexit, we've talked about uh, COVID, but actually prime ministers are very often only remembered for one thing. And I'm afraid he will, I think, be remembered for completely trashing the good chap theory of government, as Peter Hennessy's yeah. called it, the notion that there are decencies and responsibilities of honest behaviour, which lines which you can't cross. Mm. And I'm afraid Boris Johnson always behaved in an amoral way, felt that he could break those rules. And I think I, ultimately I think that is, it has parallels with the way Trump uh, behaved. And I think it is very, very threatening for the working of democracy. I mean, when you've got today, stories, I mean, another thing about Boris Johnson, the quality of his cabinet is extremely questionable. When you've got someone like Nadine Dorries talking about a witch hunt and saying it's outrageous that the House of Commons should have an inquiry in, into whether the Prime Minister lied to them, which, you know, hitherto was thought to be one of the main uh, principles that of our democracy that you can't lie to Parliament. And the minister's openly criticising that. I mean, that's exactly like Donald Trump saying, well, I'm above the law because I'm Donald Trump. And... and Boris Johnson, I'm afraid, has allowed that culture to flourish in his own interest, but he's been caught out in the end. It's interesting, Kate, because actually, what 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 sort of in a way reinforced the public cared about this stuff that actually 
there was a you know up to this you know up, up with this we will not put there was a line and it, mm. ultimately I mean it's weird that it ended up being Chris Pincher of all people which was the thing that was finally the straw that broke the camel's back but you know Tory MPs cabinet ministers finally caught up with actually where the public had been basically since the beginning of this year. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating that with Boris Johnson, there was always a certain amount of bad behaviour is maybe the wrong word for it, but, but behaviour that wouldn't normally be tolerated that people would accept. Because essentially the voters felt like he had already given them an insight into his personality and how he was going to be. You know, he never made a secret of the fact that, well, yeah, you know, I cut corners or I may do things a little bit differently, but hey, I get results. And I think in the end, as Adam says, over time, that kind of behaviour does erode something that's quite important in Parliament because Parliament is quite fragile. The way it operates relies on conventions and people behaving in a way that is expected. And when that breaks down, it doesn't work anymore. And for me, what was fascinating was at the end when Boris Johnson, when we had this this leadership challenge, even the MPs who'd supported him wholeheartedly were saying, you know, we just can't do this anymore. And there has been so many times when I've thought, well, maybe I'll just, I'll excuse it. It's okay. I'll let it pass. And all of those things had built up and up and up. And now they just thought, you know what? I can't actually face my constituents. And that reality shock of speaking to people back home, you know, families and friends who'd said, well, hang on a minute. What? He, he was okay with a party. Fine. It wasn't a party with Venga boys playing necessarily (laughs) or not all of them. But he had a birthday cake and he had people around. And hang on, I couldn't see my mum and I yeah, had to spend yeah. Christmas on my own. That was the point own. that the violations in, uh, of COVID at Partygate cut through to everyone's experience. Yeah, because everybody... Everyone, even if they'd broken the rules, they felt they shouldn't row. have done. It's a yeah. rare when it's sort of a Westminster row. Every single person in the country had a personal yeah. investment in that row. And a lot of them were people dying. Yeah. It was my family. My dad died. My friend died. My grandpa died. And I couldn't go and see them. And we all remember those awful pictures of, of people going to funerals and having to sit two metres apart yeah, yeah. and not being able to hold hands. And that video, remember the video where somebody where moved a chair? And they moved, exactly. you know, those things really became great. Well, and the smart. Queen, of course. And the yeah. Queen, exactly yeah. right. And I think you're right about Chris Pincher. You know, those allegations, that the, the thing about Westminster and sexual harassment allegations is we've worked there all of us for a long time and we've all heard them for a long time it's certainly been around since I started 10 years ago I think there has been a shift but I think the thing about Chris Pincher and the questions that came to the fore with that were how could people have known about this you knew about this and you allowed it to happen and that was fundamental I think there's another element to this that if you like the downfall of Boris Johnson began with the Owen Patterson business yes and that I think is significant in British politics because Ultimately, it was a group of privileged people, most of whom had been to Eton, deciding, apparently encouraged by Charles Moore, that they would basically use the parliamentary majority of the Conservative Party, which is a cross-class party, to say your rules don't apply to us. And it, only, uh, and it was and, and, only the case for certain types of people. Uh, uh, and yeah. I think the 2019 intake of MPs exactly. changed that's that. Where, that's where the problem yeah. started. They, they, tried, they, to, they, they, they tried to get him off the hook. And again, you had people going out and saying one yeah. thing and then having to go out and say mm. something else. And it sort of started that pattern. The same thing happened with the parties. So in a way, the Chris Pincher thing, although it was terrible what the situation with him particular it didn't really matter what it was about. It was just another new front of yeah. go out and argue that black is white. 
and the, and by the way, I always knew that it was white or black, depending on yeah, yeah. which, which one of that depending is. on which it was. Which but it was. but I think those those twenty nineteen MPs they were the thing that shifted the, the game in a way because I go back to what I said before. Boris Johnson achieved a result in that election which brought people into the party into Westminster, yeah. who perhaps didn't really expect to be there or had never spent ten years, twenty years trying to get there. And actually, the, they feel a lot more beholden to their constituents, their area, yeah. often where they're from, than they do to the central party. hometown hometown MPs. Hometown MPs. Yeah, yeah. And the other like thing liberals, was... Like liberals, like the old liberals. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they came in during COVID. Yeah. So there were none of these cosy, get-to-know-my-new-MP drinks, come and be, you know, one day yeah, I'll yeah. tip you for a minister. They, they're there because they want to do things for themselves, yeah. not because, I mean, they all probably want a ministerial position, most MPs do, but they are not loyal to him in the same way. So just finally then... Uh, you touched on it slightly, Adam. How will Boris Johnson be remembered? As a rule baker who was caught out and who did uh, great damage to the state. Okay. I think it will be difficult for him to get out from under those party gate allegations in the next five to ten years. I think ultimately, though, there will be there will be a place for him. Probably people say we're being too too kind to Boris Johnson. And there will be a question about what he, whether he changed the Conservative Party. He will be remembered as the Joker Prime Minister as yeah. well. Uh, yeah. To, uh, quite and also, much. we were talking about this earlier. He will be remembered, and some, some, you know, in, in the great, th- you know, yeah. will Theresa May be remembered? Yeah. Possibly not. And we still come back. Well, there is also that, which I'm sure you'll cover on your show. <laughs> 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 Can you tell us anything about what's on the show on Sunday? We have some really great guests. We're not going to give you any insight. Fine. We're not going to tell you who, but oh. we have some great guests. And we also have plenty of time built in to have a chat because it's been lovely just to talk things oh, it's over. Oh, been good. It's going to be nice. Yeah. Whether or not people are listening, it doesn't matter. Uh, lovely to see you both. <laughs> well, um, they are. <laughs> they are. They are. They and we'd, and we'd love people too. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. They'll be texting. <laughs> Thank you for all your messages. Uh, Adam Bolton, Cape Account. You can catch them. What's the show called? Sun, Sunday. Is it called Sunday Morning? It is. Sunday Morning with Adam Bolton and Kate McCann. It or is Kate indeed. McCann and Adam Bolton. Adam Bolton, Kate McCann, Adam Kate McCann, Adam Bolton. Doesn't, matter. doesn't matter. Ladies first. Ladies first. Very good. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to listening to that on Sunday. Uh, really good to speak to you. Uh, and uh, yeah, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Uh, you don't want to miss it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.